doing so. Hey, welcome everybody. It's great to see you. This is a snow day at George Fox University and there are like eight people in the room here as opposed to 100. So welcome to this hearty band here to see this today. Um, in the creed today, we are at the phrase, a new phrase, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit. That's our phrase for the week. Who was conceived by the Holy Spirit. I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. I left out only the other week, so we're back with the correct form of the creed. His only son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit. Do you want to try to say it out loud? You want to give it a shot? I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit. There we go. Let me begin today by reading a classic portion of a prophetic book from Amos chapter 5, um, particularly uh, verses 18 through, through 24. Amos chapter 5. If you have a Bible, you can follow along or you can just listen. Um, passages from this chapter, if they sound even vaguely familiar to the student of history, were quoted by Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. in his famous I Have a Dream speech in 1963 in Washington on the Mall. So hopefully you can hear... Uh, in these words, why they have remained powerful for so long. So Amos chapter 5. Woe to you who long for the day of the Lord. Why do you long for the day of the Lord? That day will be darkness, not light. It will be as though a man fled from a lion only to meet a bear. As though he entered his house and rested his hand on the wall only to have a snake bite him. Will not the day of the Lord be darkness, not light? Pitch dark without a ray of brightness. I hate, I despise your religious festivals. Your assemblies are a stench to me. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I will have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps. But let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never-failing stream. I wonder, just hearing those words, can you imagine being like in a church service and someone standing up and shouting something like that to a congregation? I hate your music. I hate your assemblies. I hate your prayers. God is sick of your voice. In fact, you stink to God. I mean, it would be super awkward, right, to imagine someone, someone doing that. You could even imagine not just the awkwardness, but even how people might be upset by something like that. This is the world, though, of a prophet. Today, we're going to address this question by way of preparing you for your reading for this week. What is a prophet, and how does Israel's prophetic tradition function? In particular, we're going to examine the question with reference to a group of prophets, a group, not just one, but a few, who lived and spoke during the 8th century BCE, that is the 700s. So the 8th century uh, BCE would be the 700s BCE. So we're taking a leap forward historically, but we'll, we'll fill in the gaps here in a minute. This is the first era in which we get named prophets with their own books, okay? So as we'll see here in a second, there are different kinds of prophets in the Bible who do different kinds of things. There's a huge group of prophets that actually have books that are named after them. In a sense, you could already say that Samuel is one of those books, but Samuel's not really the, the first person speaking voice of the book, like in the way that these named prophetic books, like, and I'm thinking particularly of like Isaiah, 
and Amos and Hosea and Micah. That's the 8th century group that we're going to be looking at for today. Okay, They were all contemporaries of each other. They lived at the same time. We don't know if they knew each other. It seems like maybe they didn't, but who knows. But then others as well, like we'll tackle um, in a future week of the class, namely uh, Jeremiah and Ezekiel. And there's actually a whole bunch of other ones, too, that we won't even have a chance to look at at all, like Zechariah and Haggai and Obadiah and, and all of these other ones as well. Our reference to the creed for today, to, to this phrase, conceived by the Holy Spirit, will be combined in a way with next week's phrase, born of the Virgin Mary. So that'll be next week's, who is conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. We'll combine it to make reference to one of the most famous chapters in the Bible, which we'll touch on today, namely Isaiah chapter 7, which we'll be reading for this week, um, which has a reference to a woman, a very famous reference to a woman who's pregnant with a child, Okay. That's the connection to the prophetic material we're examining, and it'll be it'll more or less work with where we are at in the biblical story at this point. Tracking as we have with the entire Bible and the creed, you know, it, it, the biblical story doesn't exactly follow the creed in some perfect way that just lines up for teaching, but actually, in a way, the creed does tell a story. Um, maybe you've peeked ahead and looked at the whole creed, for example, or maybe you're used to repeating it from your church services or something like that. But the creed begins with creation, begins with God begins in a way like the way that the Bible begins and then progresses through um, God's activities, progresses through the identity of Jesus Christ, then moves into the church, I believe, in, in the Holy Catholic Church, Catholic with a lowercase c, just meaning the church universal, all, all united Christians, and the Holy Spirit, and, you know, the coming and the resurrection and the life everlasting, amen. And so it kind of tracks with the biblical story in that sense, but tells a full and complete story in, a Christi in Christian terms, skeletally, of what the Christian life is and what Christian belief is. Okay. So we're having to kind of you know, mold it like clay a little bit into our biblical story for this week, but we can make it happen. Okay. Now, we've already met several prophets in the text that we have covered in this class. We haven't talked about them really as prophets, but like, for example, here are two. In the, book of, in the books of Genesis and Exodus, Abraham and Moses are already called prophets. And really Moses' prophetic role ends up stretching, you know, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and even Deuteronomy. Okay. How is Abraham a prophet? Like, what did Abraham really do that, that's, that's prophetic? There's a reference to him being a prophet. God says, I didn't let you touch this man or his wife to some foreign king because he's a prophet and he'll pray for you. Moses has this kind of leadership role where he's doing all this kind of stuff. He, I mean, Moses, in, a, in fact, you could say, is like the prototype of the prophet in the Bible. Like, he is like the standard prophet type. Why? Because he has a kind of, call. we could say, a call narrative. He has a moment when he's called into his position at the burning bush. Famous story, Exodus chapter 3. So there's that. He also then goes on, is sent on a mission by God and goes and speaks to people on behalf of God, which is kind of like the most basic definition of a prophet you could give, someone who speaks for God. So he goes up the mountain, right, and hears God and then mediates that back down to the people. That's what a prophet does. So Moses is kind of a key figure here. Um, we also have others. Miriam, for example. Miriam, that is Aaron's sister in the book of Exodus, in Exodus chapter 15. She leads Israel in worship after they cross the Red Sea or the Reed Sea, and she is called a prophet by the same terms of prophecy as other prophets. And so is Deborah, actually, in the book of Judges. Um, when we're introduced to Deborah in Judges 5, Deborah is a, not only a judge, a shofet in Hebrew, but she's also a prophet. How is she a prophet? You know, again, the leadership aspect, maybe. And then, of course, Samuel in the book of 1 Samuel. He dies in the book of 1 Samuel. He even gets a second book named after him, 2 Samuel. But he's there, and he's doing that same thing. He's also a judge, but he's speaking for God. 
And in Samuel, even, we get another classic aspect of the Israelite prophets, namely the idea that prophets operate vis-a-vis a king, that they're somehow related to power, and they somehow mediate God's voice to power for both encouragement and criticism, actually. So, three things we learn already about prophets. Number one, prophets are leaders. Doesn't mean that they have to be necessarily in charge of the nation, but they speak in some kind of leadership role. Number two, prophets say and do specific things. Okay, they say things, most fundamentally, but they also do things. I mean, we think of prophecy maybe just culturally as someone who stands up and like gives a really inspiring, awesome speech or something. I mentioned the, the Martin Luther King speech. I mean, that's a classic like American prophetic moment. But prophets also do things physically with their bodies. And this is where, you know, the prophets become less comfortable, I think, to like a contemporary Western outlook. They don't just say neat things about justice and righteousness, although they do that. They're also going to put their bodies on the line in super bizarre ways. Um, Ezekiel, for example, famously like is, it plays in the mud with bricks and things and kind of makes, enacts things that happen to Israel. He lays on his side for hundreds of days. You could imagine prophets really doing things with their bodies that, are, that create quite a spectacle publicly. Um, you could imagine prophets in a way kind of like street actors, people who do something to draw a crowd to themselves or do something bizarre in their physical mannerism or even in their dress. So Jeremiah, a prophet, at one point, he builds like a yoke, like an animal yoke, like you'd put on oxen and he wears it into a setting in order to say, this is what's going to happen. And then somebody comes and takes the yoke and breaks it by way of saying like, no, God is going to break the yoke. And he goes away and he comes back and he makes another one. And then he's, you know, so you can imagine prophets doing these like very theatrical, dramatic things. Isaiah, for example, at one point is it goes nude, walks around naked in order to symbolize the nudity that comes with exile. So maybe in an ancient context when a city was sacked by another group, they would um, force the prisoners from that city to be marched out naked in chains. And so Isaiah goes out enacting that. There's another famous point we'll get to in a second again, where a woman has a baby, and that baby becomes a symbol of things. So prophets are not just speakers with their mouths. That's part of what it means to be a prophet is to say things. But it also means doing things, physically acting out God's drama on earth so that people can see it. And in that sense, by the way, to prefigure some aspects of what we might talk about in our panel on Friday, the question that always comes up is like, are there prophets today? What would it look like for the Christian community to have prophets? Would it be people that are designated like the biblical prophets who write books with their names on it, like Isaiah and Ezekiel? It's a tough question, but at least this idea that a prophet is someone who speaks authoritatively for God in the mind of an audience, and as a prophet, for, as someone who does something physically to enact God's drama on earth, you could now start to see prophets in a very expanded way. Um, the Oscars were just last night. You could start to think about film this way, in terms of like how people, you know, what kind of dramas are being enacted and what, you know, what is moving and how it's moving. And so there's a really an expanded way that Christians could think about the prophetic voice, um, although Christians will disagree about who gets to count as a prophet and how exactly that functions today, vis-a-vis -vis the biblical period. Anyway, prophets are leaders. Prophets say and do significant things. In fact, the word navi, which is the word that we have, um, it's going to write it on the board here, but somebody as a prank taped the tops of the markers shut. It's cute. Um, so I'm going to forget that. N-A-V-I, navi, um, is the Hebrew word for prophet. And it really means, it seems etymologically to mean someone who cries out, someone who speaks out a message. So, Maybe this is like the fundamental aspect of how prophets were thought of. And then number three, as already displayed in this review, 
back to our gender question that we've come back to just because it's interesting in so many ways, prophets can actually be male or female. Seems that the, the office of the prophet was an equal opportunity office in ancient Israel. And we know this. There's a prophet named Huldah who shows up in the narrative of, I think, 2 Kings, somewhere around 2 Kings 20, 21, 22, 23, 24, something like that. Um, there, are, there are prophets that are named prophets in the New Testament as well, in the book of Acts, for example. Um, many more na male named prophets by, by volume, but women as well. And there's no comment on whether you should be a man or a woman. I guess the only prerequisite really in ancient Israel is just that you're called by God to be a prophet. You know? How did people get to be a prophet, though? How were they paid? How did prophets get money? Were, were prophets supported by donations and things like that? Well, there's some evidence of this. Like in the book of uh, First Samuel, um, there's a scene in which some people want to go ask a prophet about a question, like they have lost some animals. And they're like, where are the animals? And someone says, let's go, take, let's go to the prophet and ask. And then someone says something like, yeah, but we don't have anything to give him, like a gift or something. So maybe these, the, the idea is that you could inquire of a prophet, kind of like an oracle if you had a gift, and so prophets could make a living that way. But there's a lot that we just don't know um, about that sort of thing. Um, but male or female, and we know also, by the way, from the ancient Near Eastern context, we have pr prophets in other ancient Near Eastern cultures, um, and we have evidence of it. For example, there's a place called Mari, M-A-R-I, which is an ancient city up in Mesopotamia, and we have a, a huge archive of documents where prophets up there recorded all of their oracles and things that they said to a king. And you had women, and you had men, and you had different classes of prophets, different groups. So it may have been that prophets even had kind of like miniature schools and then leaders and people that were followed and things like that. Um, the Book of Kings mentions a, uh, an institution or a group called the Sons of the Prophets. So is, is this an idea that there's a prophet who's kind of like a father figure, maybe not genealogically, but otherwise to a group of prophets and then you know, kind of leads a little band of prophets and then some other people follow in the wake? So maybe. Okay, so that's a review of that. Now, we left off our story at David in 2 Samuel 7. God makes him an extravagant promise. Your line, they're going to be kings forever. You got this. Everything's going great. Let's do this, okay? Let's start an empire here, okay? The group doesn't get very far, though, unfortunately. And this, is, and, this is, and this is part, now we get introduced to the tragedy of Israel's story. God makes this extravagant promise to David, your, your, your descendants will be kings forever. And then David's son Solomon becomes king, and Solomon has all this great stuff that happens. We'll pick back up with Solomon later in the course. But there's a problem. The nation falls apart after Solomon. And the nation actually splits in two, and there's kind of like a civil war. Now, after, Sol after Solomon dies, we can no longer even speak of a single nation called Israel anymore. And the Bible doesn't. There's Israel in the north. There's a northern kingdom. And they will be ruled by kings who are not actually in the Davidic line. It's just kind of like who's ever strong enough and wants to take over up there gets to do it. And then in the southern part of the country, that's the Davidic line that remains true to that promise. And it's, those are David's descendants. And they sort of operate independently. Sometimes they come into conflict. The book of Isaiah and the book of Kings narrate some of this conflict that they come into, almost like a civil war kind of thing. So the story has taken a strange turn. No sooner do we get the land and the king, and it all just goes really fast, but then the whole thing kind of falls apart. In fact, David himself falls apart, and this is where we get a very famous prophetic moment in the Bible that takes us to the heart, I think, of one of these key characteristics of the prophet, namely that the prophet is someone who con confronts power. The prophet is someone who confronts the king. So in 2 Samuel chapter 12, David's kind of relaxing. Everything's going great. 
And there's this long story about how he sees a wo- he's standing on the roof of his palace and he sees a woman bathing down below him. Already you can see the power dynamic in the story. He's up on his roof like a king, looking down at the peasantry below, sees a woman that he wants. If you're David, I mean, this is part of the complication of David's character in the Bible. David just kind of does what he wants. He kills people at times. He takes what he wants. He sees a woman bathing. He thinks she's beautiful. He just sends a message to her and, t- and just takes her. She becomes pregnant. He's now in trouble. She has a husband. She's married, by the way. David is married, too, at this point. David has multiple wives. Like, what is he even doing, right? He's going overboard with all this stuff, and it's obvious. And so he wants the woman to think, and her husband to think, that maybe he wasn't the one who impregnated her. So he invites the husband back from war. Now the story gets really awkward because this woman's husband had actually been fighting for David's cause out on the battlefield. Invites him back, gets him drunk, hopes he will go back to the house, spend time with his wife. You know, they didn't have doctors and things like that. Who knows? You know, she conceived at this time, whatever. I mean, maybe they'll just think it's their own child. All will be well. But it's not well. This guy named Uriah, he refuses to go back to his wife, says, no, I'm fighting for the king. I'm not going to enjoy my house and my wife. I'm staying out. I'm going to sleep on the ground. And David's just kind of sighs, and he's like, well, okay, why don't you go back to battle then? And he sends along a letter saying, yeah, put this guy at the front line of battle, so hopefully he will get killed, and he does get killed. So David essentially has this guy murdered, and then takes his wife named Bathsheba. Is he going to get away with something like this? I mean, what kind of punishment should he get? This is 2 Samuel chapter 12. The Lord sent Nathan, a prophet that's associated with David, to David, Nathan. When he came to him, He said, there were two men in a certain town. This is Nathan talking to David. There were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little lamb he had bought. He raised it and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him, this little sheep. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the little lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Then Nathan the prophet said to David, You are the man. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you all this stuff, and this is, you know, I'm paraphrasing now, and this is what you do? You have somebody murdered? So this is the prophet at the prophet's best, confronting the king. It seems, in fact, like we could say that the institutions of prophecy and kingship in Israel arise together. They go together. In Israel's mindset, and you can really see this in the book of Deuteronomy, particularly Deuteronomy 17 and 18, where Deuteronomy kind of tells us the laws of the king and of the prophet and of the priest. In Israel's mindset, power goes along with responsibility. Power comes with a check. And many scholars will even point out that this seems to have been a very distinctive feature of ancient Israel's thought and political and religious process. In a lot of places in the Near East, you had what were essentially, I mean, you could say like totalitarian governments, just like total dictators, kings that were just in absolute power. You think of an empire, for example, in the ancient world like the Assyrians. The Assyrians were a very famous ancient empire. Just a dictatorship. I mean, the king and and that apparatus that the king represented just is all-powerful. Maybe there were a few little checks and balances. There kind of always are. But 
Ancient Israel actually builds these into the system really formally, and the Bible highlights this over and over and over again through the figure of the prophet, namely that the king just doesn't get to do whatever the king wants. So add this to the list of dynamics about the prophet that you'll see in your readings for this week, I think. The prophet confronts power and confronts the king. And by the way, this language of confrontation is maybe a little bit too restrictive. Sometimes the prophet is really there to encourage the king. And Isaiah seems to have functioned in this capacity as well. He shows up to the king in a time of battle, in a time of stress, and says, hey, king, don't worry about this. God is protecting us. This is what God has promised us. So sometimes prophets function in that way. Sometimes Amos, for example, Amos is a great example of confrontation. Amos comes up to the king in the northern kingdom. So Amos is from the south, southern part of the country where the Davidic line is. But he travels up to the north, goes up there to confront the king up there. It's a king named Jeroboam. It's the second Jeroboam that, that you find in the biblical narrative. Super confusing. But it's a Jeroboam who led the first rebellion back at the civil war after Solomon. That's Jeroboam one. Then there's a Jeroboam two, who is the Jeroboam in the book of Amos. And Amos, the prophet, goes up to Jeroboam and says, yeah, you know, the Lord's going to kill you and send you off into exile for your sins. And Jeroboam, they call Amos in, and they're like, look, you know, this, this priest up there says to Jeroboam the king, like, look, there's this guy, Amos, he's saying this stuff about you. It's, and Jeroboam is, like, really sad about it. He's like, I can't believe he's saying this. He's like, you can't say this anymore. You can't say this about me. This is depressing to the populace, you know. This is a politically bad message. You want everybody in support of the national project, okay. Prophets are not always in support of the national project, okay? Prophets can say things that are super awkward against the national project to say that the nation has gone astray. And Amos says, look, yeah, I said these things, okay, but I'm not even, he says, I mean, this is kind of a funny moment in thinking about how prophets thought of themselves. Amos says famously in this, in this, in this portion of Amos, he says, I'm not even a prophet. I don't even want to be a prophet. I'm just a, like a sheep herder guy, and God told me to come up and say this, so I am. That's kind of it. So he says, I'm not a prophet. He denies even that title to himself. So prophets can be in that role, confronting the king, um, um, frustrating the king. Or like Nathan. I mean, Nathan puts his life on the line in a sense. If David has already murdered one guy, why won't he murder another guy? So Nathan puts himself in a vulnerable place. The prophet confronts power, confronts the king, sometimes supports the king, though. It just kind of depends. In the Bible, though, it's mostly confrontation. Like, it's mostly negative kind of stuff. Um. Most of the kings, by the way, just to fill out this story a little bit in the plot, who follow after Solomon's death, in both the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom of Judah, the Bible actually judges as bad. It says they're bad. It says that they failed to worship the Lord. They failed to do what they were supposed to do, especially in the northern part of the country, though. The northern, the northern kings get no love from the biblical narrators. They are not happy with that northern part of the country. They split away. They don't have Jerusalem as their capital. They don't have the temple down there. They don't have the Davidic line. It's a disaster. There are a couple of kings in the south that the narrators seem to like. One of them is named Hezekiah, for example. He shows up in the book of Isaiah, supported by the prophet. There's a king named Ahaz, with Z-A-H-A-Z, in the southern uh, kingdom, whom Isaiah supports in a way. Later, or I should say earlier than any of this, though, in the narration, um, after Solomon dies, when there's this split, there are some kings in the north in Israel who are confronted by this wild dude named Elijah. Elijah's a famous biblical prophet. He, he's kind of like exactly what you picture when you think like prophet in your mind, right? He wears this like crazy kind of clothing. He probably has a wild scraggly beard. He eats bizarre foods out in the wilderness like locusts and snakes and stuff like that or who knows. 
He comes and he calls a drought on the country. He confronts one of the northern kings, Ahab, who marries a woman named Jezebel, whose name has become famous as like the evil, wicked woman Jezebel. He confronts them and calls a drought. Think of what a drought symbolizes in an ancient context. It would symbolize the same thing for us today, a failure of leadership. Because there's a system there, like if the king is obeying God's word, this is all in like Deuteronomy, this is like big time Deuteronomy language. If the king obeys God and if the nation is righteous, God sends rain and crops and everything is fertile and it's like everything is working in a cycle. But if there's a drought, what does this imply about the king? In fact, this goes back to that deity I mentioned the other week that Israel was tempted to worship, namely Baal, B-A-A-L, Baal, remember we met Baal in the book of Judges. Israel was constantly going off and worshiping Baal, okay? Baal was a god of fertility. That was like his famous thing. That was like what he was into. There's a story about Baal that we actually have from a corpus of texts in a language called Ugaritic. And in these Baal narratives, Baal is kind of like he fights with death. And sometimes death wins and sometimes Baal wins. And maybe this corresponds to the rainy season and the dry season. So it's kind of like a weather story in a way. He's associated with weather and fertility, which is a big deal in the ancient world. You need the fertility of the wombs of women to bear children. Women, of course, died in childbearing at astonishing rates in pre-modernity. Um, and you need the fertility of your land or you're going to die. They don't have the kind of technology we have to artificially irrigate. I mean, they did some irrigation, but it wasn't like what we have. They didn't have all this technology. And droughts, of course, are still a problem for us. Anyway, so when Elijah comes up, this is in 1 Kings 17, and calls a drought on the country, huge problem. God then feeds him in the wilderness. He ends up having a one-on-one -on -one battle with a bunch of Baal prophets in this like prophet wizard battle kind of scene. Like, and he ends up killing all of the Baal prophets at the end of it because they lose and God sends fire on this altar. It's a very dramatic story. Okay. And then his successor, Elisha, sounds like Elijah, but Elisha. So these two guys operate in like the night, like you might say like um, in the 800s BC. And that's that era. And they play a huge role. This also, okay, another point about how the biblical narrators functioned and how these prophets, how they were seen by the Bible. There were powerful kings in the northern kingdom. For example, there was a king named Omri. Omri, O-M-R-I. Um, and this king, Omri, I'll write his name here on the board. I found a marker. Okay, here we go. Omri was a powerful figure in the ancient world. In fact, Omri, this king of the northern kingdom, was known in inscriptions from a nearby empire called the Assyrians, Assyrians, A-S-S-Y-R-I-A-N, Assyrian. They were a huge empire to the east and the north of Israel. And they mentioned Omri. In fact, they called the whole area in their inscriptions, literally, they called it Beit Humri, which is kind of like a way of saying Omri land. So like he was so popular and so big, so big time, that they even named the whole region as like his place, his house. But here's a funny thing. Even though Omri was super um, popular, the Bible says almost nothing about him, but spends chapter after chapter after chapter after chapter after chapter narrating these little tiny interactions Elijah has with widows and orphans and people like that. This tells you something about the biblical worldview of values as it concerns the prophet. The prophet looms large. The king, eh, who cares? Ahab, his successor, his son, whom Elijah confronts really directly. Yeah, he does. He barely gets any airtime. He comes off like as a whiner, a loser, and Elijah is the big winner, right? God is the winner, and that's what the prophet represents, the winner, God's victory against power. So much more could be said about that. 
Let me talk a little bit about some of these 8th century prophets. Isaiah, Amos, Hosea, Micah. Those are the four. I'll write their names up here just so we know who we're talking about. Isaiah, Amos, Hosea, and Micah. These were all contemporaries of each other in the 8th century BCE. What is this context in the 8th century? Our readings for this week will talk a little bit more about this context, but just to prepare you for those readings, I'll just summarize and say, during the 8th century, the Assyrian Empire was ascendant. It was a big deal. They were threatening and they were looming, and they had a goal, which was to basically take over everything and everybody. They were a machine. They were kind of, in a way, it's not totally inappropriate to think of the Assyrians as like the Nazis of the ancient world. Like, that's how people thought of them. Totally oppressive, a dictatorship, trying to basically make the whole world Assyrian. That was their goal. They thought it was a religious goal. It was something they had to do. However, um, some of these prophets were in places in both the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom where they, these little groups wanted to rebel against Assyria. They're not just going to let this group come in. So not just Israel and Judah in the south, but also like the Arameans, Damascus, and some other groups had, cho had choices to make in the face of this Assyrian onslaught. What would they do? Would they just say, oh, Assyria, we love you. Here's our money. Yay, you're the winner. Or would they, or would they fight? Okay. So that's part of the context that you need to know. Um, there were also some very powerful kings um, who ruled for a really long time in their respective areas, particularly in the north, this king named Jeroboam, I'll write the name up here, J-E-R-O-B-O-A-M, Jeroboam II, and then also Uzziah, U-Z-Z-I-A-H, in the south. These were powerful kings who ruled for decades each in their respective places. So there were also periods in the midst of this of prosperity, too. When a king rules for 40 years in an ancient Near Eastern context, you know that things were going well, because it's hard to kind of hold on to rule for that long. When things go well, though, the prophets are often there to say, not everything is as good as you think it is. And this is one of the key roles of the prophet that I want to mention. And this is, this is fascinating. And this is, I think, somewhere where we can think today about how, how, how a prophetic role functions in the Christian life. Prophets attempt to usher a nation into a state of psychological disorientation when, in fact, things are going badly, but people don't realize it. Maybe just on a personal level, you can think of a situation like with a family member or a friend where somebody was just like in deep, deep trouble, but like they seemed not to realize it, right? Um, they're doing something that's horrible. They're hurting themselves and other people, but they seem kind of oblivious. What's needed in that situation? In adult situations like that, what's needed are for people to kind of come in and tell people how serious the situation actually is to help them see something, to help them feel the hurt and the pain that they're supposed to feel, but they are not feeling. Prophets do this. They come in and they usher an audience into disorientation when they need to feel it, and, and, and they provoke and pester them with symbols and with language from the community's tradition to help them understand who they really are. So prophets do this to a nation. So even during times of of, of great prosperity, like as occurred in pockets and at times, prophets are there to say, yeah, just because everybody's rich doesn't mean things are going well. We see this even in our own nation. I mean, this is just a basic human kind of concept. When the economy's good, kind of like everybody's like, meh. 
When the economy's bad, everyone's like, ah, you know, and goes crazy. Or gas prices often function this way. When gas prices are high, people are like, what's wrong with the world? But when gas prices are low, people are like, oh, I don't know, it could be worse. You know, we tend to be ruled this way by money when things are going well. Profits were not ruled this way, though. If things were going well for a profit economically, that did not mean that the nation was righteous. Just like having money and prosperity doesn't mean that everything is well with the prophet or with God for the prophet, okay? But during times when the Assyrians threatened, the prophets could actually be great allies for the kings. In fact, let's look at one of these famous moments, Isaiah chapter 7. It's one of the most famous moments in the Bible. It has a context for Christians, which is really obvious. It's the Christmas story, okay? It's the Christmas story. It's the promise that there will be a woman who will be with child. And this passage, in fact, is quoted in the New Testament. It's helpful, though, I think, for readers of the Bible to see this passage not only as the Christmas story. Ultimately, yes, it has that kind of end goal or telos in mind for Christian readers. But it also has an original context. That's really fascinating. So the context is this. The Assyrians are threatening Judah. The northern kingdom is also kind of threatening them. They're just getting threatened all over the place. So this King Ahaz is the king in the south, and he's just struggling. He is struggling bad. So Isaiah comes to him and says, look, don't worry. This is Isaiah 7-7. This is what the sovereign Lord says. It will not take place. It will not happen. So this thing you're worrying about, he's saying, don't worry, it's not going to happen. He says in verse 10, ask the Lord your God for a sign, whether in the deepest depths or in the highest heights. So Isaiah is really reaching out to the king here. He's like, ask for a sign that this Assyrian threat and this threat from the northern kingdom is not going to happen. Ask, ask God. Wide open. Can you imagine that in your life? If like you felt like you were, you were promised something by God and someone said, ask for a sign, it'll happen. What would you say? Would you be like, okay, you know, make this book float in the air or you know, who knows what kind of sign you would ask for? Here's what Ahaz says. Ahaz said, I will not ask for a sign. I will not put the Lord to the test. He's so holy, he won't even ask for a sign, you know. Seems like maybe he's, you know, he's saying, no, I'll, I'll just believe, don't worry. Then Isaiah said, hear now, you house of David. Isaiah's not happy with this. Is it, an, is it not enough to try the patience of humans? Will you also try the patience of my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. I'm going to give you a sign anyway, the prophet says. The Alma will conceive and give birth to a son and we'll call him Emmanuel. Okay, this is a big moment. The Alma. Now, I just put the word there untranslated in my reading. Because that is really the word in Hebrew there, Alma. A-L-M-A-H, if you just wanted to write it in English. This word really means young woman. And it does not have a technical connotation, in Hebrew at least, um, of a, quote, a virgin. There is a word for virginity in Hebrew. All cultures have these kind of terms for women and for sexual states and men. It's batula. It's not the word. Was it probably the case that most young women, in fact, in Israel of, you know, kind of like a middle, late, teenage-type age were virgins? Probably, maybe. I mean, I don't know. But it's not the language here. In fact, in this context here, and this is something kind of strange about biblical interpretation, you can have a context with a meaning and a horizon, but that doesn't exhaust or exclude other meanings or horizons. Okay? We know that this woman, in fact, has this baby at this time because the text in Isaiah just says it outright. Let me read on after the, after the, the famous reference here. And, and the NIV 2011 translates Alma as a virgin here, but they do so in order to anticipate the New Testament meaning in the book of Matthew where there's the Christmas story. 
So verse 15, he, that is this child, will be eating curds and honey when he knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right. For before the boy, this boy that the Alma has, before the boy knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right, the land of the two kings you dread in the northern kingdom in Assyria will be laid waste. So in other words, there's a timestamp on this. This is a fascinating moment. Isaiah looks at the crowd. He uses a woman as an object lesson and says, see the young woman? She is pregnant. Maybe they know she's pregnant already. I don't know in this context. See the woman? She is with child. She's going to have a child. And before this kid really even gets to be old enough to really know right and wrong and do too much, this threat you're worried about is going to be gone. So there's a timestamp on this, right? And it's a very vulnerable one because a pregnant woman, what does a pregnant woman represent but total vulnerability to the forces of the world, to war? I mean, think of what, I mean, ancient warfare practice of the Assyrians was brutal. It was ugly. This is gruesome, friends. The Assyrians would come in and they would often kill pregnant women, even rip their stomachs open and cause them to lose their babies and kill themselves. This is recorded in Assyrian documents. So the notion of a sign, the idea that there would be a sign that is a woman who is pregnant is really visceral in this context. To say, nope, this woman is vulnerable, she is pregnant, but she's gonna have the baby. And you're gonna be okay, and by the time this baby grows up, these people that you're worried about, they're gonna be nothing. So you can see very clearly in Isaiah 7 that yes, this is about a real historical context in the 8th century in, in Israel about Ahaz, about the baby, about some woman who apparently is not a virgin in this context exactly. The text doesn't say that she is. Maybe she is. Maybe she's not. She's going to have a baby. She does. So that's a famous moment in one of the prophets. Um, Isaiah has so many others, too. I'm asking you to read the first few chapters. You're going to get a sense of this great prophetic language, kind of like Amos, like when I was reading that at the beginning. I mean, he, he says all kinds of things. I mean, this is the way that the book of Isaiah opens. Just listen to this language. I mean, maybe this doesn't sound like such a sick burn in, in the, our current context, but you've got to kind of think of like an ancient farming context. Okay. Hear me, you heavens. Listen, earth, for the Lord has spoken. Notice how bold it is. The prophet will even speak in the first person as though the prophet is just speaking for God directly. I reared children up and brought them up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its master, the donkey its owner's manger, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. He's basically saying, like, you're a bunch of stupid animals. Even stupid animals know what they're supposed to do, but you don't know. Even a stupid animal knows where to lie down and get its food, but you don't know. And then he goes on. I mean, it's such extravagant, dramatic speech that the prophet gives us. Amos has this kind of talk everywhere. Hosea is one of the most dramatic books. Oh, man, Hosea is so dramatic. Hosea is a great example of a prophet who does things with his body, with his activity that, that dramatizes Israel's state of being. God asks Hosea to marry a woman who is called Basically, is she called a prostitute? Not technically. She's called an unfaithful woman. A woman who is maybe known not to stick with one man. And he's asked to marry her. And then she's going to cheat on him and maybe have kids that he doesn't know if they're his own kids. And then he's supposed to name these kids really, really like hurtful names. Like Lo-Ami, not my people. Have a kid and name it not my people. Kind of like if you're a father and you don't know that the kid is yours, you'd be like, I don't know, are you my people? Maybe you're not my people. God then looks at Israel and says, you're like a bunch of, you're like a cheating spouse against me. We were supposed to be married, God says. We were supposed to be doing this thing, and you cheated on me. See how painful it is? I mean, who gets to experience this pain, though? It's so bizarre, right? 
Hosea experiences it himself in his own body. So the prophet is asked, almost mystically and physically, to experience the pain of God's drama in their own life. To really feel it and to speak out of that pain and that experience. So Hosea is doing stuff like that. Micah is a disgruntled farmer. Micah is this last one on our list of the 8th century group. He's a farmer who's going to speak about like people, you know, rich people taking land from poor people. He even speaks out another very famous line that I want to read you. It's kind of moving. He says, this is Micah chapter 6. Listen to what the Lord says. Stand up and plead my case before the mountains. Let the hills hear what you have to say. Hear, you mountains, the Lord's accusation. The Lord has a case against his people. My people, what have I done to you? How have I burdened you? Answer me. He's even being sarcastic. How have I burdened you? Answer me. I brought you up out of Egypt. Remember that? I'm adding my own commentary here. I brought you up out of Egypt. I redeemed you from the land of slavery. I sent Moses and these other characters. Look what you've done. Verse 6. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? What can I bring before God to really help him out, Micah says? Should I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of oil? It's kind of hyperbolic language. Is he saying, he's saying like, oh, if you want to make God happy, should you just pile up offerings and oil offerings and rivers of oil coming down? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression? Should I even sacrifice my own kid? The fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. Such a simple message, right? It's kind of even inspiring for the life of faith today when we worry about all these requirements and am I doing enough and what am I supposed to be and who am I, how am I supposed to grow up? Micah's just, he's a farmer, you know, but he's a prophet. And he's like, just do justice and walk humbly with God. That's what God requires of you. So the prophets also have a way of simplifying too. Many times the prophets are even seen as being somehow in opposition to priests or the priestly system of sacrifice. And you can see how because Micah's saying like, yeah, sacrifices, come on. You don't have to wait until the New Testament, friends, to kind of get this idea from God and from the Bible that, you know, maybe sacrifices can't fully, fully accomplish what God wants to accomplish on earth. Because the prophets are saying it all over the place. Micah's like, yeah, rivers of oil, rams and oxes, I don't know. How about just walk humbly before your God, okay, he says. So you're going to read some, some Micah and see this kind of stuff. The prophets usher audience into disorientation. They help them feel the sickness that's truly inside of them when they need to feel it. And yet they also energize them, like Isaiah energized Ahaz with the symbols of the woman and the baby. They see things that are pretty. They call it ugly. <laughs> Amos is all about this. You'll see some of this in Amos. They see what looks broken down, and they say it's alive. Prophets are great levelers. Do prophets predict the future? Sometimes, but they're always speaking in a contemporary context. Do prophets call people to repent? Sometimes, most of the time, yeah. But sometimes they just announce doom with really no chance for anything. Are there prophets today? I know a live question. We'll have to kick this to Friday to our panel a little bit to talk about what role a prophetic speaker might have in our contemporary world and how Christians might think of that today.